So good to be back, and as it was great to be at Celebration, uh, my first time with you at the hotel, which was fun, and uh, after all these years at Warrensburg, and uh, numbers growing and the sense of God's presence with us, so a real joy to be with you again this morning also. Prayer can be a blessing and that we can find our lives touched by the Word of God. So I'm going to speak to you from the book of Jonah, if you want to... uh, Look at that. Uh, I know Jonah's not the easiest book to find, but it's tucked away in there. I'll read it to you from Jonah chapter 1. We're just going to read this opening chapter. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, how is it you're sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we'll not perish. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry ground. Then the men became extremely frightened. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he'd told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to the land, but they couldn't, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, don't let us perish on account of this man's life. Don't put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you've pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights." Father, we thank you so much for the joy of singing your praise, of gathering together in your name, the high privilege of being awakened out of our death 
into your life, into your light, out of our darkness. Thank you so much, God, for these huge privileges. And Father, we ask you right now, would you please come by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, please let your word come alive to us. Let it speak into our lives. We thank you that your word is quick and powerful. We ask you that we may feel its edge, feel its power, feel your love. Lord, come and speak to us, Father, we ask you, please. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Pardon me. It's an amazing book, the book of Jonah. Extraordinary story, so many miracles that people wonder, is this a true story? I mean, extraordinary uh, facts about a great fish that swallows a man, a storm that comes, a great city that repents. Uh, later on, we find a, a plant that grows and then sinks down. You think, well, is this really kind of a fable? What is this? Is a story we can have confidence in? And some people have said, well, actually, it's probably just a kind of a picture of what happened to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is supposed to be followers of God, supposed to represent God so well, more and more backslidden until they get swallowed up by the empire of Babylon and for a season are under Babylon's control and then later, after 70 years, kind of spat back out again. So, oh, that's what it's about. But actually, the Bible doesn't give us that picture. The Bible speaks about this man as though, yeah, he's a historical figure. Jesus, in a, one of the times he's speaking, he refers to Jonah, uh, kind of in the same breath as he speaks of the Queen of Sheba. And the Queen of Sheba was a real historical character. You'll find uh, in other history books as well as the Bible. And, uh, and he speaks of Jonah similarly. And actually, if you look at uh, the Old Testament, you'll find Jonah... Uh, in another setting, you'll find him referred to in 2 Kings chapter 14. I'll just read a few verses to you, just a couple of verses here. It says about Jeroboam that he was an evil man in the sight of the Lord. He, he, he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet who is in Gathifa. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter. And it talks about there that here's Jonah, this same guy. He's referred to in a historical context. And it's during a season where a man called Jeroboam is the king. And it's said in the passage I read to you, he was an evil king. He was not a man who honored God, but at the same time, he was a powerful king. And he pushed back the borders of the nation. And, and so it was as big a nation as it was in Solomon's day. So he was extraordinarily successful in spite of being an evil man. And it says he pressed back the borders as Jonah had prophesied was going to happen. So Jonah is vindicated as a true prophet. He has spoken what will happen. It has happened. But it, there's no kind of moral uh, requirement. There's no kind of call on the king to honor God or repent or anything. He just says, you're going to enjoy uh, geographical success, your borders will be enlarged, and it happened. So Jonah is here as an authentic prophet, and a pretty comfortable one at that, living in a backslidden time, but respected as an authentic prophet who doesn't seem to trouble anybody. Then one day, as we read in the passage, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now that is the mark of a prophet. That's almost the kind of introduction to what a prophet is in the Bible. Sometimes you can hear people spoken of, maybe great uh, leaders, 
I'm just reading a biography of Abraham Lincoln. It's just fascinating. It's a very thick one, so I didn't bring it with me for my long journey here because I've nearly finished it. But it's just fascinating. What he, he was a kind of a visionary. As you might say, Winston Churchill was a visionary or Nelson Mandela. These great figures that kind of rise up above other people. They can see. They speak ahead of their time. And some people say they're prophets. But that's not what the Bible means by a prophet. The Bible speaks of a prophet as somebody who, to be honest, isn't necessarily brilliant, but who receives the word of the Lord. God speaks to them. They are literally his mouthpiece. He speaks. They know things supernaturally. It's not just that they're great students of history, like a a Winston Churchill who, who looked further. He said things like this, the further back you look into history, the more you'll understand the future. So he's just a a guy who who is very resourceful, etc. But here, these Bible characters, God comes to them. God speaks to them. And so, yes, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. He he was an authentic prophet. God gave him his word. But the tragic story is this, that when God spoke to him and said, now go to Nineveh, tell them that judgment is going to fall upon them because of the great evil that is taking place there, we find Jonah, instead of just doing that, Jonah refuses to do that. And and the, the strange thing is that he has kind of forgotten that God is the God of all the nations. And he really represented someone who had a very narrow vision. He was a man who cared about his own nation but didn't really care about other nations. And if you read the whole story through, it's evident that he was aware that God would actually show them mercy if they repented. He didn't want that. He was, he, was, he was shut into his world. And when he did that, he'd kind of forgotten who the people of God are. But when God first started working with this nation, he said to Abraham, who was the first one of the whole nation, he said, through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But I'm here to bless all the world. And King David, when he taught the nation these wonderful psalms, he again and again said things about, the Lord is the king of the whole earth. All the nations will fear him. All the nations will praise him. So when Israel was in a very healthy situation, they understood we're here for the world. When they became narrow and shut in, they kind of forgot that responsibility. And to be called to go outside was very uncomfortable to him. He didn't want to do it. He had no compassion for them. So God's word was, I'm going to judge them. When God said that to Abraham, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham says, no, you mustn't do that. He appeals to God. He's got compassion for the people. He says, God, please don't do it. And through his prayers, Lot gets rescued. Uh, He prevails. God, please don't do it. Moses, similarly, when God speaks to Moses about he's going to really deal ruthlessly with the people of Israel, Moses comes back to God and says, Lord, please have mercy. There's none of that with Jonah. He doesn't care. He's really out of step. There's no healthy response from him at all. But the story of this book is really the story of this man. In that way, it's kind of different to every other Old Testament prophet. You'll know that there are a number of Old Testament books that are just called by the name of the prophet, like Isaiah or Jeremiah and so on. And many of those books, like Isaiah, it's almost entirely just the words he spoke, thus says the Lord, and a whole chapter, you know, 52, 53, chapter after chapter of phenomenal words from God. With Jeremiah, you get a little bit of the curtain opening, you see Jeremiah's pain, you see how they deal with the man, 
the prophet himself, something of his story. With Hosea, perhaps even more, the agony he goes through. We, we meet the man himself, not just the words of the man, but with Jonah. The whole thing's about the man. If you look at the prophecy, it's only eight words that he prophesied. So it's the book of Jonah, but it's really the book about what happened to Jonah. And what happened to this man is the message of the book. And what it shows us is this amazing, relentless love that we've been singing about, this amazing grace, this relentless love that God pursues the man and seems, as you go right through the book, to be as concerned about the man as he's about this great city. And this phenomenal thing about the Bible that tells us about a God who not only cares for the whole world, for great cities, but he cares about you, your life. He cares about one man. It's a book that tells us about Jesus saying, the good shepherd will, will leave the 99 and go after this one. He'll search for him till he finds him and brings him back. And God knows us. He knows your life. He knows my life. He knows the things that perplex us and get us off course, and he's interested in you. He always wants to bring us back into his plan. And so the book really is about how God pursues this man and brings him back into his purpose. And so let's look at this story because it says, the Lord said this, and then the story kind of kicks in when it says, Jonah, but Jonah, decided to go the other way. And it doesn't. The next verse is not. So God said, uh, Amos, uh, come along, Jonah's lost the plot. Uh, there's a job I want done. Could so easily have done that, couldn't he? He could have said, well, thank you, Jonah. It was nice knowing you. Push off. Okay. Amos, you can be my authentic prophet. Get this job done for me. And you just find in the Bible, dear friends, again and again you find this, that God does not quickly wash his hands of people who say, oh, forget it, I'm off. You find God is incredibly kind and full of mercy so let's see what happened to him. Let's follow the story through. Let's see that, you know, maybe God's spoken a word to you. Maybe God said to you, I don't want you in that business. I don't want you in that relationship. I don't want you having that bad attitude with your relatives. I keep speaking to you about it. And, and, and God says all sorts of words. The word of the Lord comes to us. That's the fantastic thing about being a Christian. There's a sense in which we're all kind of prophets. We're all people. It says the New Testament, I'll pour my spirit on all flesh. Each one shall know me from the least to the greatest. We all have access to God. God speaks to us. The word of the Lord, in the Old Testament, it was very unique. The word of the Lord came to these prophets. In the New Testament, it says you have no need of anyone to teach you, really, because you all know. There's, there's a sense in which you all have access. My sheep hear my voice. We, we can all know him. He can speak to us. He can call us. Come on, out of that, into this. He's, off, he's constantly speaking to us. And here we see what happened to this Old Testament prophecy, that he doesn't respond. The first thing we read is this. Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. Now, that's a strange phrase, isn't it? He fled away from the presence of the Lord. You may immediately think, hey, wait a minute, I know my Bible. It says, where can I flee from his presence? If I make my bed in hell, you're there. It's like, where can you flee to? God's everywhere. God, even if I get into gross evil, you know, God, doesn't, God can see me. And so, hey, how can you flee from the presence of God? But obviously the Bible speaks in this in more than one way. And the presence of the Lord here for the prophet means something quite 
specific, really. The Hebrew word for presence is actually the word face. And he fled from the face of the Lord. He fled from that incredible privilege that belongs to the prophet in the Old Testament, to us in the New, that you can have face-to-face fellowship. You can talk to God. It says about Moses, he went into the tent and he spoke to God and God said, I speak to Moses face to face. He came out, his face shining. The presence of God was with him. This awareness that God is in my face. And to be honest, that's the mark of this prophet. It's the mark of a prophet. That's what makes a prophet authentic and powerful, that that we stand in the presence of God, that we have encounters with God. If we don't have encounters with God, what are we, religious What are we doing? What's the whole point? The whole point is you can know God and you can be in his presence. So that David prays things like this, one thing I've desired of the Lord, that I'll seek after, that I may be in the house of the Lord, I may behold his presence. I might be in the presence of the Lord. That's his appetite. And that kind of rings a bell in the heart of a believer. I want to be in his presence. And it's really what authenticated These Old Testament prophets, they stood before God. God said things to them. That's why you find a man like Elijah, who's a famous Old Testament prophet, he can come before a king, the king of his nation, say, it won't rain until I say so. That's a pretty courageous thing to do. You could call up President Obama, if you like, saying, it's not going to rain until I say so. I mean, that's it. He went to the king, he said, it won't rain until I say so. And then he went back to him three years later. He said, you better move. The rain's coming. You think, who do you think you are? But it says this about him. He said, the God before whom I stand, Elijah said. It's like I stand before God. So when you meet me, it's like you meet God. It's the same with Moses. When Moses confronted Pharaoh, said, let my people go. Pharaoh's meeting this man, but actually behind him is God. This presence of God that's there. And and beloved, that's the privilege of the people of God, that when we're in his presence, when we're enjoying him, when we really know I'm receiving from God, I am speaking, and it may be to your neighbor, it may be to the person who works in your office, or the student in your college, there's something about when you speak that adds another dimension. There's there's an authority that comes through, because you're living in the presence of God. And this was the mark of the Old Testament man. He could say, no, This is what I'm saying to you. I've come from his presence. Of course, in the Old Testament here with these prophets, it's a unique thing. But in the New Testament, it's, it's widely for us to dwell in his presence. He says, if you make your dwelling in me and I make my dwelling in you, you're going to bear much fruit. Coming from his presence, dwelling in him, abiding in him. And so here's this guy, and he's he's the thing that makes him an authentic prophet is that he lives in the presence of God. So he is fleeing from the presence of God. He's going away from that face-to-face fellowship, that, that personal awareness, that being with God. That's what he's doing. He's fleeing from that face-to-face fellowship. He's getting away from God. And beloved, you can be doing that. You can be in church this morning, and yet in your heart, actually, you're, you're not in step with the word of the Lord that's come to you. It may be a very specific word that has come to you and you're saying, no, I don't want to do that. If I do that, there's all kinds of implications. If I do that, there could be, oh, I could really suffer. No, I think I won't do that. And you know, you don't have to go into the far country, really, 
Because we read about a parable that Jesus told about a prodigal son who ran away, took his inheritance and went to the far country and wasted it all. But at the end of the story, when he comes back and is completely restored, we find there's another son. And actually, probably this is what the story is all about. It's about the other son who has not gone anywhere. He's not run away. He's not wasted all the money. But he's not lived in the presence of the father. And when the son comes back, he says, why are you giving a party for him? He's a waster. Your son wasted. And the, and the father turns to this son and says, well, he said, you never gave a party for me. He said, everything I've got is yours. Come on, enjoy. So this son has never gone away, but he's never been close. It's possible to be religious, but not be close. It's possible to go to all the meetings, but not being face to face. So let's be careful of this. Let's not say, well, I've never gone away. I've not turned my back. No, we can be failing to enjoy face to face even if we're still at home. God wants us to be aware of his presence, face-to-face fellowship with him. So he got away from the presence of the Lord. This morning, there's a fresh invitation. Come back into face-to-face. There'll be opportunity to be prayed for at the end. Come back into, well, I just know I've, I've drifted. I want, I want face-to-face fellowship again. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to say, come on, come back into the intimacy of face-to-face fellowship. It's what it's all about. The heart of the whole thing. We are brought right back to knowing God. So first of all then, he fled from the presence. Secondly, it says he found a ship that was going to Tarshish. Now here's a strange thing. See, so God says, go this way. He says, no, I'm not going to. I'm going to go to Tarshish. He goes to the harbor. And what do you know? There's a ship going to Tarshish. Well, there you go. There's the ship. So you think, well, God can't be too upset with me. I want to go to Tarshish. Here's a ship going to Tarshish. I'll jump on board. So it just fell in my lap. It's just, obviously God's okay with this because there's the boat and that's what I need. So I'm getting on board. And we can be like that. We can go, well, you know, God just made this happen. You know, I mean, I know the guy's a crook, but he asked me into business with him. Well, I mean, just came across my path. It's just coming to me. Or I know I shouldn't be with her. I shouldn't be with him. I know they don't know Jesus. I know they've got another relationship, but hey, come on, I'm I'm going after this. And we can have all kinds of decisions. Well, we just got thrown together. I mean, there he is, he's in my life. I mean, we're in the same office. I I mean, it's obviously God. And and, no, 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 it's not, it's not. But it's just come across my path. I'm not making it happen, it's just happening. I mean, I can't get away, (laughs) here it is. It's obviously God, no, 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 actually, Satan's got a whole fleet of ships going to Tarshish. He can send you another one tomorrow. There's another one coming along. So, hey, it looks like he must be. No, no, no. He has rejected. He's rejected God. He's going his own way. He's missing the way. And sometimes we get led along by what we would say. Well, circumstances are proving it. Now, beware. His circumstances are completely out of step with the will of God. And this guy's got onto it. He's got onto this ship. He's committed himself to it. Are you doing that? Come on, don't do that. Wait for God. Wait patiently for him. Don't give yourself to something you know is not from him to take you further away from the presence of the Lord. So he found what looked good, but it wasn't right. 
It's so easy for us to do that. We need to be very diligent, be very careful. Sometimes at the end of meetings, someone will say, well, just pray for me. What would you like me to pray? Well, would you just pray a blessing. Would you pray a blessing? And very often if I pray for people, I'll pray, Lord, help them to make good choices. Because that's what, so much of what the Christian life's about. That's what Paul prays for the believers in, the, in Philippians. He says, I hope you'll be filled with love and knowledge to choose what's best. It's about making good choices. It's, you know, if you're going to be, where will you be a year from now? It's all to do with what choices are we making now? I'm going to go down this path. Oh, where's that going to lead you to? Make good choices before God. And so he got on to, he found a ship. Second or next one, thirdly, he, he fell asleep. Right, he went into the boat. It says he went down and he fell asleep. Now, there's nothing wrong with sleep. The Bible, the Bible says he gives his beloved sleep. And, and we can learn about rest as we have even this morning, that God brings us into rest. There's a rest that is appropriate. There's a place for rest. Jesus fell asleep in a storm. Jesus was weary when he came to a well. We read about in John 4, give me something to drink. I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm thirsty. There's, a, there's an appropriate weariness. There's nothing wrong with tiredness. There's nothing wrong with rest. But here there's something other than simply sleepy. He's lost out and he's just checking out completely. He is, he's kind of losing the plot completely. And there's a kind of weariness that really is because I've got bored and I'm out of step, I'm out of purpose. There's nothing exciting my motives. And that can lead to sleep. And you can find that believers get outside of the context of church to find their emotional fulfillment. It's like we go to church, but the big thing is this other thing. It's the other things that excite us. It says in the book of Hebrews, don't grow sluggish, but through imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. See, when there's delay and so on, you can get sluggish. The Bible calls us to faith, to perseverance we were hearing about. It's projecting forward, to going on into what... Otherwise, you can, you can just tick off and, and life gets boring. So I'm a Christian, but I'm bored. Hey, if you're a Christian, you're bored, you've lost the plot. Because it just isn't boring. You read the New Testament, it isn't boring. It's amazing what it is to be a Christian. And so, if we say, well, I need to get my excitement from somewhere else... The Bible's warning us against that. And do you know what? You can be very busy and yet still bored. Because somehow your heart's not engaged. And so don't, don't allow yourself mentally to get sluggish. You know, challenge your mind. I, I love reading, get hold of stuff that stirs your mind, and engages your intellect. I've just been reading a book about the, the, the God becoming man. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. I mean, I've known about it for years, but I'm searching it, looking into it more and more. Great is the mystery, the Bible says. God became man. He became flesh. Great mystery. Wow, think about it. Oh, no, it happened at Christmas. No, no, get into it. Engage your mind. This is, this is the most phenomenal thing you could ever think about. The God who created the universe became a human being who learned obedience. Have you ever gone there? Like, what was it like for this man? Was it like growing up? How did he learned obedience? Could, could, he, could he have gone to the cross when he was 23? How much, how much did he learn obedience? How did he 
What was he? Oh, just think about him. Give your mind to considering him. And your heart. We're worshiping here. Our hearts are engaged. We think, when's this going to finish? No, our hearts. If you realize, no, there's a dullness come in. There can come a sleep that is a kind of dullness, routine, done this before. And if that's happened to you, beloved, we just need to say, God, please have mercy on me. Wake me up. I'm losing the plot here. Just wake me up. Because God doesn't want you like that. God's got ambition for you. I'm amazed how much ambition God has for us. God is full of ambition for you more than you are for yourself. And then when I was so backslidden as a young Christian, and I felt God was calling me, I thought, no, I, I'd rather be sinning, thank you. And you know, I, God had to deal with me quite severely, really. And then you think, wow, God had this for me. I had no idea. I had no idea God had plans. God had, you know, I'd have been content to be a sinner. I'd have been content to be a nominal Christian. I'd have been content to be in this little context. God had a huge ambition. God's got ambition for us. God wants to bless us. God is excited about us. You're his work of art. That's what the Bible says. We are his work of art, created in Christ for things he's prepared beforehand for us to walk into them. So he's got ambition for you. He doesn't want you sleeping on the job. He wants us awake. So he fell asleep. Lethargy took over, boredom, dejection, depression. Turn on the telly. Is there anything on to wake me up? No, God help us out of that terribly sad situation. Like a small group tonight. Oh, I can't be bothered. It's the prayer meeting. I'm too tired. Not realizing that that's where you wake up at the prayer meeting. And we, when, we stay, when we say, no, I can't be bothered. But hey, wake, wake up, wake up. Something's happening. He fell asleep. He fell asleep. Then it says this, he failed the world. Because what happened was a kind of a crisis broke out. Unpredicted storm. And dear friends, we, are, we can't just plot our lives because we don't know what's around the corner, either on a grand scale whether it be economic crisis in the nation, political crisis in the nation, or among the nations. We don't know what's going to hit us. Or sickness in our home, unexpected accidents, things that, things that are outside of our control. If we're not alive and alert, we drift at serious moments. We're in great danger in serious moments. So Paul says, be on the alert. The days are evil. We don't know how evil might suddenly invade your life. And suddenly there's a storm. This is not something he knew about, something he wasn't anticipating. Sudden upheaval, and he's not ready for it. And these sailors kind of wake up to the crisis. Hey, there's a storm. What's going on here? And they start throwing things overboard, and they start praying to their gods. And he's hopeless. He's just asleep. He's like, you're irrelevant. You're not even looking for answers. We're all in this crisis and you don't have any answers. And yet it's, he's the center of the whole story. And yet he's not providing any answers because he's not living in the light himself. And Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its savor, it's good for nothing but to be trodden underfoot. It's tragic when believers are trodden underfoot. It's tragic when a nation begins to lose its way and the church maybe raises its voice and it's just trodden underfoot because who cares what the church thinks? It's an irrelevance and they walk on and, and the, 
the salt of the earth is trodden. It's lost. It's no purpose to it. Because it's not, the salt isn't applying. It's not the light of the world. It's not what it's meant to be. And here's Jonah who's meant to be the light to the nations and the light's out. So he's a waste of time. And they're saying, we're trying to solve the problem of the storm. Won't you help us? Sometimes that happens in the nations. You'll find sometimes people who want to do good, NGOs are doing things. Maybe the church could come on board and help us with this. It's not for the church to come on board and help. It's for the church to be the light of the world. It's for the church to be the salt of the earth. It's the church to be the answer. Because this is the truth, that we are the answer. But when we've slept, when we've found a place to sleep, we're missing God, we're disobeying, we're drifting, we lose our edge. And here it comes, the storm is coming, he's failing the world, he's useless, he's not doing, bringing the answers, and then suddenly he kind of finds himself. Suddenly he comes to himself, they challenge him, who are you? And then he says this, I am a Hebrew. What he's saying is this, I am a child of God. The God who created, he said, the heavens and the earth and the seas. I'm in touch with the authentic God. And suddenly, there's fear. Because they suddenly realize this guy knows what he's talking about. And Jonah is so, it's a mo- the, this is the beginning of breakthrough, beginning of revival, when a man, the true church of God, wakes up to who she really is and says, this is who I am. It's us owning our identity. We've been singing about it in the meeting. Lord, remind me of my identity. Help me to be who I'm meant to be. Are you being who you're meant to be in the workplace, in your family, amongst your relatives? Are we being what we're meant to be? Own up. This is who I am. I'm a child of God. God speaks to me. I'm not denying him. I'm not hiding. I'm carrying the word of God. In fact, I'm the reason for the storm. I'm not here just to help you. This is all happening because of me. And, and beloved, to realize the people of God matter that much to God that storms can hit your world and it's God reaching after you. It's God who's doing it. It's God who's seeking you out. And sometimes we hit harsh times and we, and we, we battle against it. Lord, come and help, Lord. And, and the Lord's waiting for you. Wake up. It's about you. It's your heart. I'm after your heart. I'm seeking your attention. And when, when Jonah begins to wake up to the reality of who he is, begins to say that this is who I am, you find actually revival begins to break out on the ship. Now later it will break out in Nineveh. But it begins to break out on the ship because this guy owns up to who he really is. That's how revival really works. When the church wakes up to who she really is, and the spillover begins to happen. God moves in his own church. True revival is not something we put on. That's like a, a series of evangelistic things. When, true revival is when the church suddenly wakes up to, hey, we're children of God and God is amongst us, and then it spills over. That's authentic revival. When God wakes up his people, he begins to move. We begin to say, no, I... I'm authentic. I, I saw a movie once, uh, a Christian movie. I haven't seen many, but I saw this one. It was a missionary movie. It was done in-house, and uh, it told the story of a missionary who'd really grown so weary of the work he was doing. He was working a very primitive tribe, I think, in um, South America. A very primitive tribe he was working with, and uh, he, he was 
are very aware that they were crooks and cheats. And, and he's trying to win them. And, and he's lost out. He's lost his joy. And, and, and they keep coming into the hut he was living in. And they, they keep stealing things from him. And he's just so furious with them. And, you know, he's supposed to be there as a missionary. But, you know, the more they come to him, the more he hates them coming. And, you know, what well, you ought to change. And so, get, you know, he's really angry with them. He's preaching to them. And, and it shows in the film that he's got this hut. And the hut has a, a, a wooden framework. And there's gaps between uh, the floorboards. And uh, you see this guy talking to, uh, he's a very primitive guy, got hardly any clothes. And he's talking to the missionary, and, and he knocks something off the missionary's desk. And it's a nice pen that falls on the ground. They keep talking, and then with his bare foot, he gets this pen and slithers it across to the gap in the floorboards, and it falls through the floorboards. And his friend, who's underneath, catches another thing. And, uh, and so they're just ripping off this missionary all the time. And uh, he's just angry, so furious with them. And then one day, he's lost his favorite pen. And one of, the, one of the natives comes into his hut and he's, he's just full of life and through his ear is his pen. He said, it's my pen. And he's, he's so furious with these people. And he said, this is terrible, this is terrible. And then there comes a moment when he gets so convicted of his attitude and he looks at what Jesus did and how Jesus gave himself, thoroughly gave himself, didn't... didn't stand for his own rights or anything, gave away. And he's just completely changed. Com the missionary completely changes. And then the ripples go out right across the tribe. They say this, the missionary's become a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's just, everything starts changing. And this guy begins to love them and, and becomes who he's meant to be. And a, a work of God starts happening in this very simple tribe as this man really lives out what it is to be a real believer. God wants us, beloved, to be who we're really meant to be. And it comes from, yeah, obeying when he speaks, keeping face-to-face -face fellowship, instead of going off on our own tangents, going after our own ship, choosing our own way, refusing what's on offer, refusing to receive the word of the Lord. See, the word of the Lord is meant to keep on working in us all the time. Changing us, developing us, strengthening us. As we obey, we get more and more light. And we grow in grace. We don't turn off, fall asleep, drift away. And so we find here Jonah owns up to who he is. And he effectively brings the storm to a conclusion by saying, look, look, throw me into the storm. I, I'm the source of your problem. And they argue with him and they try to overcome him and they say, no, let's row, let's try and do what we could. In the end, the storm's getting worse and worse. He says, no, 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 throw me in. And they take this one and they're, they're, all, they're all pagan people, they're going to die. And they take this one and throw him into the sea. And that's the end of the storm. The storm's all over. It all finishes when he takes away the responsibility. He says, no, I, I'm responsible. Beloved, as I close this morning, let me just say this. Jesus said, one greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Jonah. And there's a way in which he identifies himself with Jonah. Jonah took, if you like, the guilt and the storm's over. Jesus, we're told, was absolutely innocent 
That's the word that's describing him in the Bible. He was innocent. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. God did it. God made him to be sin. He became the personification of guilt and evil. And as we sang in our worship time, he has washed all our sins away. It's so great to come to a meeting and to be able to say that, to know that. Do you know that this morning? See, it's not, I don't want you to say, well, I hope so. I've, I've been trying to come to church. I've tried to do it. Mum and dad told me, so I'm trying. It's not about trying. It's about believing that he took my place. That when he was handed over, that's what the Bible says, God didn't spare his own son, but gave him over for us all. He was handed over. That's a very frequent Bible phrase. He was handed over. He, he, was, he, was, he, didn't, he said, no one takes my life from me. I give it. Jesus said that. No one's, t- no, no one's taking it. I give it. Even when Pilate says, i got authority. Jesus says, no, no, you've got no authority except what the Father's. I'm giving myself over. It's like Jonas says, throw me in. And here Jesus is saying, look, I give myself into this storm of guilt and shame. I'll take your place. You go free. Out of his love, out of great love, Jonah here, he's, he's in the midst of a drama. Jesus knows says, you're in a drama. I'll take your place. I'll suffer. I'll, I'll go through it. And if you read through the next chapter, which we won't do now, and you read uh, what Jonah prays, it's almost, it's almost like a prayer. Imagine, you know, if you've got time later, turn up Jonah 2 and, and imagine Jesus praying this prayer from the cross. All the billows have gone over me. It's like, it's like he says in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's like I'm going down, down, down. Jesus takes our place. We walk free. He died so that we can be forgiven. He died so the storms end. He takes away the guilt. He'll take your guilt this morning. If you've not done that, why don't you do that this morning? Why don't you, as we said earlier, if you'd like to be prayed for, maybe you'd like to be prayed with others, uh, be prayed for that. Lord, I want to make it clear. I want to make it clear today. Would you make today your day? Make it today. Say, I'm going to settle this thing once and for all. Jesus died for me. He took my place. I'm going to walk out clean from this place. God's speaking to you this morning. Let's, let's respond to him. Let's not let his suffering be in vain. They're saying, oh, let us do it. Let us row. Let us know your rowing's not going to do it. It's going to need me to be thrown in for you. And all our religion won't do it. Jesus must take your place. And you need to say, yes, Lord, I receive. I receive that mercy. I take it to myself. Will you do that this morning? So as I close, let me just say, some of you, maybe, maybe you are believers. And like Jonah, God's spoken things to you. No, I don't want to do that. That's too costly. It's too difficult. If I do that, I'm in trouble. I choose to go this way. So we tend to do that. We say, well, I love the Lord, but mm, I just need to make these choices. And we go away from face-to-face fellowship. And God seems kind of distant. He's not close like he used to be. And God's inviting you this morning. Come back. Come back into face-to-face fellowship. Or it may be that you say, well, I, I've never really settled this. 
I'm kind of hoping it'll rub off on me. I come to church, I'm hoping. No, there comes a moment, dear friends, when you say, I trust that he died in my place. I put all my confidence in Jesus. See, sometimes you ask someone, are you a Christian? Say, yes, I do this and this. I go to church. I've always put, no, no, no. When the answer is I do, we know you've got it wrong. We know you're wrong. You're a Christian, yeah, I'm trusting completely in what Jesus did. Ah, you understand. Let's stand to pray, please.